chapter 55. Attention all who thirst, come for water. You who have no money, come and buy food that you may eat. Come buy wine and milk with no money and at no cost. Food is a covenant blessing. So is water. So is wine and milk. So this person, whoever is speaking, is offering covenant blessings to somebody. No doubt to God's people who are presently not receiving covenant blessings. He's inviting them to come. It's free, no cost, without money. That is, literal money. So the Lord's covenant blessings are free. But we know that there is a condition, that is, to keep covenant with the Lord. They don't just come of themselves. They don't happen among the wicked. This person is calling people to covenantal allegiance with the Lord. But who is he addressing particularly? You who have no money. In other words, the poor. He's especially addressing the poor people. Attention. He's calling them to attention or calling their attention, trying to attract attention. All who thirst. They're hungry because of covenant curse and thirsty. This person is coming among them and saying he can do something about that. Will they accept? Verse 2. Why do you spend money on what is not bread, your labor and what does not satisfy? Hear me well. Eat what is good and your soul shall enjoy abundance. So he's trying to change their paradigm. Their idea is you buy TV, and you spend money on that, and you watch that, and he's saying, why do that? That's not food. It's not physical food. It's not spiritual food. And it's expensive. And the meager means that you have, you're spending on things like that, on your idols, the works of men's hands, your labor and what does not satisfy. In other words, you're kind of in bondage to these things. TV doesn't satisfy you. Bread represents food, or covenant blessing, or plenty. Those things satisfy. Eat what is good. Good is a synonym of covenant and covenant keeping, as evil is a synonym of covenant breaking and covenant curse. So eating what is good comes from covenant keeping and the covenant blessings that flow from that. And your soul shall enjoy abundance. That's something to be said for the Protestant ethic, is that if you labor and you work hard and you live a good Christian life, God will bless and prosper you. It's true. Give ear and come unto me. Verse 3. Pay heed that your souls may live. Notice all these terms. Attention. Come. Hear me well. Give ear. Come to me. Pay heed. These people need waking up from some kind of sleep. Right? They're in a stupor. Isaiah using these terms implies that he has to attract their attention somehow. They're in a certain frame of mind or a state or a condition and they don't even realize it. He has to wake them up to some better alternative than their lifestyle. Give ear and come unto me, pay he that your souls may live. Now the Lord is speaking himself, or his servant is speaking in the name of the Lord. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, only the Lord can do that, my loving fidelity toward David. Here his servant David has something to do with that. His servant David is mentioned in chapter 37. The Lord protects the city for his servant David's sake. And we know that the Lord's servant is a descendant of David, Chapter 11, verse 1. So, the Lord is speaking now, directly or through his servant, trying to call these people to his covenant, an everlasting covenant, or an unconditional covenant. The Lord made an unconditional covenant with King David after he proved himself faithful to the Lord under all conditions, which covenant David then later broke in the case of Uriah and Bathsheba. But, before that time, the Lord did make with him an unconditional covenant. Second Samuel chapter 7. Psalms 89 and 132. 
and scholars have noted this everlasting or unconditional covenant. And the Lord wants to call these people to a similar kind of covenant, not just to a covenant like the Sinai covenant, which was a conditional covenant. If Israel would keep the terms of the covenant, then these blessings would be hers, and if she would not, then these curses would be hers. The Lord wants to call people to a higher covenant than that. He wants to prove his people and then bless them everlastingly with unconditional blessings. Go on down the generations like those of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob or like those of King David. They have to come unto him. How do you come unto him? Well, by coming to him in your minds and in your hearts, acknowledging him as your covenant Lord, covenanting with him as a vassal covenants with his emperor. He comes to the emperor and makes the covenant in his presence. Covenant of sacrifice, as in the case of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and of King Hezekiah. Then their souls will live. Live spiritually and physically both. This chapter 55, or these chapters, form a unit that juxtaposes chapter 28 and those chapters around there, which talks about a covenant with death or a covenant of death. In the Bifid structure of Isaiah, there are two structural units. One is the opposite of the other. The covenant with death has to do with human schemes and contingency plans and human agreements and treaties and so forth, the arm of flesh, and those all fall down. And People who make those covenants or make those agreements or have those understandings or plans, they all disappear, they're all destroyed by the Assyrians. And here, the Lord offers people an alternative to that. There's a covenant of life. It is the unconditional covenant the Lord made with King David, which he wants to make with his people. Pay heed, give ear. Listen, guys, I'm trying to tell you something. Do this, and this is what will happen. Don't you want that? Yes, but we're too busy with this other stuff, watching TV or polishing our car. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my loving fidelity toward David. Now that was an ancient idea, but it's also a living person at that time. You see in the next verse, verse 4, See, I have appointed him a witness to the nations, a prince and lawgiver of the peoples. We've seen that before. The servant was appointed as a light to the nations. He was a lawgiver, chapter 42. The peoples await his law. The isles await his law. Each of these terms, witness, prince, and lawgiver, are also associated with covenant. A witness is the witness of the covenant. The lawgiver is the one who teaches the law of the covenant. The prince is one who stands for the people and mediates with God on behalf of his people, and so forth. And the word appoint is a word link to the Lord's servant. Chapter 42, verse 6 says, I rightfully called you and will grasp you by the hand and have created you and appointed you to be a covenant of the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes of the blind, to free captives from confinement, from prison those who sit in darkness. Chapter 49 says the Lord has appointed him to be a light to the nations. And chapter 9, which identifies him as the descendant of David, says that the Lord has appointed him. He's a son appointed, a child is born. He's born on a higher level of the spiritual ladder than he was before, and he's appointed now to fulfill a certain mission, to a certain ministry. And those are all word links. The appointment is to perform a mission upon the earth to the covenant people of the Lord, who are scattered among the nations of the world. They're in a condition of exile and scattering under a covenant curse, and he is now to welcome them 
or to invite them to come back into the Lord's covenant, to become a covenant people once more. In verse 5, you, the Lord addresses him personally, you will summon a nation that you did not know, a nation that did not know you will hasten to you, because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, who gloriously endows you. He's a person who's endowed of God with power and authority, and that happens when his situation is reversed. Remember, he's first marred, and people are appalled at him, and then he becomes prominent and exalted among the nations. That's his reversal of circumstances. And when that happens, when people see that he's a glorified person, gloriously endowed of God, then they'll sit up and take notice of this person. This was the guy that we didn't even recognize him as human. His face was so disfigured. And now look what has happened to him. Something miraculous, something wonderful. It's creating a sensation. The media are talking about it, and well, this person is becoming very well known. Who is this guy? And he's speaking in the name of the Lord, and he's inviting these poor people to new the covenant relationship. You don't have to chase the media when the Lord acts. They'll chase you. He does that. He uses that prominence and that renown that he then gains and when the Lord reverses his circumstances and empowers him to attract the attention of the Lord's covenant people and to summon them. He's summoning them to come with no money and buy covenant blessings. It's also a nation he did not know. That means he didn't have a covenant relationship with them because to know is a covenant term. It means that they were not a covenant people, at least not observing an active covenant relationship. They were covenant people by lineage, but that didn't mean very much. They were just like any other nation if they didn't know God. You will summon a nation that you did not know. In other words, they were lost, lost people, like the ten tribes, lost from history. A nation that did not know you will hasten to you. When? When he summons them, of course. Where do we find that elsewhere? Well, we find that in chapter 11. He's a light to the nations in chapter 42, and he releases the oppressed and people from bondage. And they gather from exile. In chapter 11, verse 10, it says, In that day the sprig of Jesse, who stands for an ensign to the people, shall be sought by the nations, or by the Gentiles. They'll seek him out. And they come from the four directions of the earth, chapter 11, verse 12, when the Lord raises that ensign to the nations. He is the ensign. And the Lord raises him up, and he summons them. That's what the purpose of an ensign is, to rally people, or to summon them, to a cause or to some place, and that's what they do. They respond to him because they recognize him as something that they like or that they want, and so they respond to him and hasten to him, chapter 55, verse 5, because the Lord has endowed him and shown the whole world that this person has power. It's like Moses to Pharaoh. He has power to bring plagues upon Egypt, and he has power to bring people out and divide the sea and cause armies to fall before the Lord's people and so forth. Verse 6, Inquire of the Lord while he is present, call upon him while he is near. Which means that the Lord's revelation is there for his people if they want it. He can guide them in these present circumstances and the situations in which they find themselves. They can know if this person is of God or not. Just ask the Lord. Or they can get revelation from God through him. The idea here is that God is here. God is present. He's near. His coming is near. His second coming is near. The coming of the Lord in glory is near. And during this time of preparation for His coming, there is a revelation and knowledge to be had by His people if they will but inquire of the Lord. 
But some of them don't bother to inquire of the Lord, so they'll never know. But you can inquire of him directly or through his servant or through his servants. How? By calling upon him in your private prayers or through the channel that the Lord provides through his prophets. So it implies that there are prophets there. There's a revelation from God at this time of preparation. Verse 7, Let the wicked forsake their ways and sinful men their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord and he will have mercy on them to our God who graciously pardons. Away with covenant curses, away with wickedness. We don't want that anymore. Let all of that be given up. Let the wicked forsake their ways. Repentance really then implies not just being sorry for what you've done. Oh, I've committed this horrible thing and I, I'm really sorry that I did that. Now everything's fine. I'm going to do it again next week. So That's not repentance. They have to forsake their ways. That's the way Isaiah defines repentance here. If they forsake their wicked ways, then they can become righteous. Sinful men, their thoughts. Because thoughts are the precursors of actions or words, and that is a sin. So first we must purify our thoughts in order to repent. Forsake our wicked ways. If we continue in wicked ways, then we'll continue to have sinful thoughts. But if we give up our wicked ways, then we can start cleaning up our act. There's kind of a formula given here, forsaking the evil ways, giving up our wicked thoughts, then returning. That is returning or repenting. The word return in Hebrew is the same word as repent. Let them return to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. When you repent, when you come unto God in full repentance, then the law of mercy comes into play. If you don't, the law of justice remains for you and you are destroyed in that day with all the wicked that are destroyed. Let them return to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. I like that word in Hebrew because it's so much more than just remorse. It's a return to the Lord, to a covenant relationship with him and to the keeping of the law of the covenant. He will have mercy on them to our God, to our God, that is our covenant Lord, our covenant God, who graciously pardons. And he can pardon because he's taken our iniquities upon himself. And if we will but repent, we may be forgiven. Verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. Just by way of comparison, give up your wicked ways and adopt the Lord's ways, which are higher than your ways. Give up your thoughts and preoccupy yourself with the things of God. Start thinking the way he thinks. God is the ultimate exemplar. He's the exemplar of the servant who prepares the way before him. The exemplar of all the sons and servants of God we must constantly be emulating, seeking to emulate him. Verse 9, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Because he's on a higher level than we are, on the spiritual ladder. Each level is higher than the next, and it's quite different from the one before, in that it's purer, more righteous, more filled with light, is more involved. The higher you go, the more love, the more willingness to serve, and the more devotion, dedication, allegiance, and so forth. And so is God toward us. There's a world of difference between him and us, and yet we can emulate him. Verse 10, As the rain and snows descend from the sky and return not to it without watering the earth to render it fertile and fruitful, providing seed for the sower and food for the eater, so is the word that leaves my mouth. It does not return to me empty. It accomplishes what I desire, achieves the purpose for which I sent it. While on the subject of the sky or the heavens, 
It's not talking about the blessings that come from the heavens, the skies, covenant blessings, which bring the food and the milk and the wine and so forth that we were talking about at the beginning of the chapter. These people have got to get out of this situation of covenant curse into one of blessing. Then the Lord will send the rains and the snows. And they don't return to the earth without watering it and making it fertile and fruitful. So that it's no longer barren and dry and yields nothing, but it provides seed for the sower and food for the eater. So is the word that leaves his mouth. The word of God is sure. It doesn't return to him empty, just like the rain doesn't return empty. It accomplishes what I desire, achieves the purpose for which I send it. One may rely upon the word of the Lord, given through his mouth. Mouth is a metaphor describing the Lord's servant, along with the other metaphors, voice, light, ensign, hand, righteousness, and so forth. And we determine those metaphors through direct identities, such as the servant being an ensign to the nations, and so forth, but also through parallelisms with each other. The one metaphor parallels with the other, so eventually we can tell which words are metaphors. So is the word that leaves my mouth. So the words of the servant, the Lord fulfills. We also saw that earlier. The Lord's servant declares it ahead of time. He prophesies things and they come to pass. Chapter 41, verse 26. He's Zion's harbinger. He's a herald of good tidings to Jerusalem. Verse 27. Chapter 44, verse 26 says that he fulfills the word of his servant. He accomplishes the aims of his messengers. When the Lord's servant comes, the whole world gets into a different gear. The word of God is to be had at that time, and everything that he says will happen just the way that he says it. People will go two ways. Some will accept, and some will reject. Some will inherit covenant blessings, and others covenant curse. Some will be destroyed, others delivered. Verse 12, You shall depart in joy and be led back in peace. Led back from exile. and Depart from exile. From your place out there, when the king of Assyria destroys the nations, you will be led out like Lot out of Sodom, who was accompanied by the angels who delivered him. You shall depart in joy and be led back in peace. Peace is that wonderful word again. It's synonymous with salvation and healing. The mountains and hills shall sing at your presence, and the trees of the meadows all clap their hands. As you come through... You will go through the fire and through the waters and also through the mountains and through the deserts. Vegetation will spring up before you as you return. We saw that in chapter 41, verse 17 and 18. When the poor and needy require water and there is none and their tongue becomes parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer their wand, I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open up streams and barren hill countries, springs in the midst of the plains. I will turn the desert into lakes, parched lands into fountains of water. I will bring cedars and acacias, myrtles and oleasters in the wilderness. I will place cypresses, elms and box trees in the steppes. That happens when they come in the exodus from exile to Zion. And so it is here. The mountains and hills shall sing at your presence and the trees of the meadows all clap their hands. But those words are also metaphors. They refer to nations and people. People are trees, mountains are nations. And they clap their hands. So there is a happy homecoming for the Lord's people. And they're welcomed at home by those who are already there. That follows the literary structure of trouble at home, exile abroad, and happy homecoming that Isaiah uses as one of his literary structures in the book of Isaiah. Verse 13, In place of the thorn bush shall come up the cypress, in place of nettles, the myrtle. These are word links to the passage I just read in chapter 41. This shall serve as a testimony of the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be done away. 
Why? Because the whole earth is transformed into a new paradise, from being a desert under a curse and thorn bushes and so on. We'll no more have briars and thorns. We'll only have beautiful trees to beautify the face of the earth. It'll be as the Garden of Eden, as we read in earlier passages. All of that will be as a testimony of the Lord, a sign that shall not be done away, just like the rainbow after the flood. So this new paradise or new Garden of Eden will be an everlasting sign of the Lord's doing. And it is all for the benefit of those who survived the destruction, who merited or were worthy of that deliverance because of their faithfulness to the Lord's covenant. They're the ones who come back.